You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and welcome to what I'm actually going to start off by calling Middle East Analysis because that's probably what you've heard me call it over the last 11 years on and off. Because yes, indeed, it has been over a decade since I've been doing these Middle East analysis podcasts with Dr. Harry Hagopian, who is on the end of the line, but I'm not actually going to introduce him just yet, because we're trying something a little bit different today. Something I've called MENA 140. And I actually got corrected fairly swiftly by Harry to call it MENA Golf 140. So what is that? I'll tell you. 140 is 2 minutes 20 seconds, which is exactly the amount of time you're allowed to put a bit of audio out on Twitter. So when we were deciding to make things a little bit more compacted, a bit more bite-sized, a bit more digestible, we thought, well, okay, if it's good enough for Twitter, that's got to be a good enough length for us to tackle our subjects. So we are going to go around a number of houses in the Middle East, North Africa and Gulf regions. Um, every month with Dr. Harry Hagopian for this very new idea, Mina Golf 140. What do you make of that, Harry? I think it's a wonderful idea, uh, James, and thank you for coming up uh, with it. And uh, I hope it works, but uh, people are so tired these days with so many audio podcasts, with so many video clips, that I think your idea of doing something short and sharp, and I think we've got to stick to it because we both have a tendency to digress and divert. If we stick to it, I think it's just what I would call it personally is food for thought. In two minutes, 20 seconds, you cannot analyze a situation, any situation in the MENA and Gulf regions uh, properly and appropriately. So what I am now thinking of doing, and I've started doing this with other outlets as well, is to provide food for thought. And if people are really interesting, you take the seeds that have been sown and then you can do whatever with them yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to start sowing some seeds now. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do, not that the listeners can see this. I've got my little timer here set to two minutes, 20 seconds. So you're and going for... to do what they threatened Biden and Trump with, which is switch off or <laughs> mute the the thing when I go over two minutes, 20. <laughs> Harry, I've never successfully managed to mute you yet. So I don't I don't personally think that's happening today. It's a little guideline. We'll take this as a test bed, shall we, this first one? Let's do that. Great. So, first topic, and I think an appropriate one, having mentioned, actually, that it's 11 years since our first Middle East analysis. So the first MENA Golf 140 is on the Arab Spring, 10 years on. And the question, Harry, is, is the Arab world better or worse off 10 years after the Arab Spring? couple of very quick answers to that, James. One, it's not only really an Arab Spring, because in truth, there have been two Arab Springs. What Rami Khouri, a dear friend, calls revolutionary uprisings rather than the Arab Spring. There was one in 2010-2011. You and I have spoken a lot about uh, those over the past decade or so. Then there was another follow-up one in 2018, 19, and 20. So there have been two sets of revolutionary uprisings. What have they achieved? Well, the situation before the uprisings and after the uprisings is pretty much the same on the ground. 
Why? Because the protesters who wanted change, radical change, freedoms, etc., they were, they were countered by those political forces and interests that didn't want them to succeed, what some people call counter-revolutionary forces. And therefore, those two collided. Add to this the fact that the economy of the MENA region is very bad. Add to it the COVID-19 pandemic, which is really hitting the MENA region quite hard, that I would say personally that it's neither better nor worse than what was before because of those colliding forces. But what I do add is that two genies, if you want, have come out of two bottles in two time frames. And in my opinion, those genies are still outside the bottle. They're taking their time figuring out how to do the changes But those changes will come because it's inevitable, even though you can see so many politicians, so many vested interests trying to counter it because they don't want to change. They don't want to lose what they have in their hands. Wow. Mina Golf 140. First ever segment. Bang on two minutes. Wonderful. I did it. You did it. You're in time. Oh, well, it was never in doubt, was it, Harry? Let's be honest. Brilliant. Okay. Well, the next point that we're going to cover, interesting word, normalization, because I don't even necessarily understand the terminology fully myself. What is normalization? But in this case, I'm going to ask you, Sudan will join the UAE and Bahrain in recognizing Israel in a series, of course, of US brokered deals ahead of the presidential elections. What does this mean for other Arab states and the wider region? Well, that's very interesting because it's more like normalization than formal ties at the moment, uh, James, because the closest we come to formal ties is with the United Arab Emirates. As far as Bahrain and Sudan are concerned, they're really only intents or intentions or memorandum of understanding leading up to uh, formalization of uh, ties. But let me put it in this way. Why did the UAE do it? The UAE uh, decided to establish ties with Israel because it wants to get American fighter planes. And to do that, America should be given the green light by Israel because Israel always has to maintain a superiority in military arms, according to the American doctrine at the moment. It also wants to engage with Israel in high-tech and communication uh, projects. So the UAE always thinks of itself as being one step ahead of the rest of the MENA and Gulf region. So it's trying to do this. Why did Bahrain do it? In my opinion, Bahrain did it because it was allowed to do it by Saudi Arabia. So in my opinion, it's a precursor to things that might happen with the Saudi kingdom later on, perhaps soon, perhaps after the king dies and the crown prince uh, takes over as king. Sudan? Well, for Sudan, there are two achievable aims. First of all, its economy is in dire straits, so it wants to get money. It also, therefore, wants to get out of the boycott list. All this can only be achieved if it becomes friends with America. In other words, all three, Sudan, UAE, and Bahrain, have their own interests, but they're also trying desperately to make President Trump and the U.S. administration 
happy, so they support them. And in the process, of course, what is happening, unfortunately, is that they're shunting the Palestinian conflict to one side. Wow, you're very consistent, I have to say. That was only a shade over two minutes as well. And actually, Harry, I should point out at this stage that we had a little chat off mic before we started recording, and you did make it clear to me that I would have to sit on my hands a little bit with follow-up questions. Indeed. So I will. I have, I have Iranian thoughts going through my head, but I'm not going to ask them Listen, at this stage. you might have lots of thoughts. I might have lots of thoughts. As we go along with this, what you might start doing is... If you have Iranian thoughts in your head or if you have uh, Turkish thoughts in your head or if you have Russian thoughts in your head, whatever thoughts you have, we have to get into a frame of mind that instead of making any one question you suggest to me, and let us say that those questions, I don't know them, you're throwing them at me, what you need to do is instead of lengthening a question over the two minutes, 20 seconds you've allocated to me, that you then add another question, which would be another two minutes, 20 seconds. That is entirely fair. It may have to wait for another podcast. I don't know if my mental dexterity will do that, but (laughs) it's a fair point. You have a lot of uh, uh, dexterity, James. That is uh, not the issue. So in a sense, I think... As we, if we manage to stick with this, if we manage to make this a normal routine monthly thing rather than once in a blue uh, moon, or as you said, and it made me smile, 11 years on and off. If we don't do it (laughs) on and off and we do it regularly, then I think both of us will get into the frame of mind of doing uh, Middle East analysis audio podcasts, Twitter style. Very much so. So, Harry, I think this particular question would would fit quite well after the normalisation question. And that is, I I mentioned the presidential elections in the US just before, what would a Biden administration do differently to the Trump administration with regard to Israel-Palestine? To be uh, fair, uh, James, I'm unsure yet whether we'll have a Biden or a Trump presidency after the 3rd of November. But assuming it will be Joe Biden who will take over the White House in January 2021. I do not really expect a radical change in terms of what happens in the MENA and Gulf regions. It would be more uh, a question of details rather than a question of core policies, because both presidents are uh, pro-Israel, supportive of Israel, supportive of Israel's Right. The the only difference is that uh, Joe Biden works as an establishment man. Uh, President Donald J. Trump is more of a loose atom, and therefore you can never predict what he's going to do. Whereas if Joe Biden works according to the rules that have applied for many decades at the White House in, in Washington, D.C., I think we will at least get some more predictable reactions. And those reactions will inevitably impact or be implemented on policies regarding Iran and the JCPOA, the nuclear treaty. It will apply to Palestinians and they probably will be brought back in from the cold. Uh, There will be a little more scrutiny on some of the 
human rights abuses across the MENA and Gulf regions from Saudi Arabia to Egypt. But in essence, it is a question of interest, not style. And therefore, much as there might be some uh, changes here and there. I don't really expect to wake up uh, the day after Biden uh, sleeps at the White House and suddenly realize that things are different. Remember, even Obama couldn't do it. I don't think Joe Biden, who's as much of a uh, an establishment man, will do it either. Look at details, look at small signs, not at big policy changes. Bang on. You're, you're, you're very disciplined, Harry. You're sticking to this very well, I must say. Well done. OK, so we do, though, now move on to a subject that I know, obviously, you have an interest in, a strong interest in. But I think, to be fair, you've been reasonably uh, balanced on this one. Now, I'll explain myself further because people who don't know you will probably wonder what the hell I'm going on about. But we're going to talk uh, briefly about Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, we, we actually did an entire podcast on this one many years ago, but we did. And it does a, certainly does appear to be the worst outbreak of hostilities for a good quarter of a century with that particular tense reality. And the question, Harry, to you is what are the international actors doing to either dampen or pour fire on the flames of the conflict? And I'm talking primarily about Turkey, Russia and the U.S., of course, uh, James. Well, the, the war in Nagorno-Karabakh at the moment, which is in the southern Caucasus, is one that worries me a lot because there is a lot of pain. There are lots of casualties uh, that are happening on both the Armenian and Azerbaijani sides. And you said I'm trying to be as even-handed as I can. Indeed, I am because I'm Armenian. Therefore, I'm party to this conflict. But I'm trying to look at it strategically rather than emotionally or uh, through slogans. At the moment, what is happening, we've got a lose-lose situation. The conflict has been frozen for almost three decades, 30 years. The OSC Minsk group, which was supposed to come up with a solution, a resolution to this conflict, and the three co-chairs of this group, the mediation group, are Russia, United States, and France, never managed to actually force both parties to come together and and cut a deal. And basically, it is over a small parcel of land that happens to be uh, in Azeri territory, but almost entirely inhabited by Armenians. And if I want to put my lawyer's hat on, I would say that it is basically a tug of war between principles of territorial integrity versus self-determination. The land is in Azerbaijan, therefore should Azerbaijan control it, the land is occupied almost entirely by Armenians. Do they have the right uh, for self-determination. That is where we are. And at the moment, the Turks are 100% behind Azerbaijan, which is why the levers of power have changed dramatically in this latest chapter of confrontation. Whereas the others, America is not really doing much. It's far too busy with Trump's agenda and the presidential elections. And Russia is basically playing both sides and trying to see what it gets out of it. So at the moment, I'm not optimistic about this war, and I'm very worried about where it would lead us to. 
I think, as you said before, this does require further questioning. And then perhaps that is uh, something that sadly, by virtue of the fact it won't be sorted out by the next time we speak, will come up again in MENA Golf 140. It would be good to do that. And uh, perhaps we could also point out here, uh, James, that if people are interested in having a broader... Uh, again, I come back to my initial premise that what I'm trying to do today, and I hope this is a new, a new approach to our Middle East Analysis uh, podcast, I'm trying to provide food for thought. Now, if somebody says, ah, Nagorno-Karabakh, where in the Dickens is that? What is this uh, confrontation he's talking about? A land in Azerbaijan inhabited by Armenians? What is happening there? What I would say is that leads you to do some research. And if you don't want to go and scratch your head too much and saying, well, research, what do I read? Where do I look uh, for it? Go to my YouTube channel. I've already done three recordings of YouTube videos of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, and I've called them Frozen Conflict 1, 2, and 3. Each, each one is roughly 15 minutes long. And hopefully tomorrow, I'm going to have a conversation with a conflict resolution academic who's neither Armenian, nor Azerbaijani, nor Turkish, nor French. So in a sense, it's going to be an interesting conversation. And I'll add that as the fourth uh, offering that I'm giving people. So you can go, if you listen to those, I think you're right, and thank you for mentioning it. It's as even-handed as I can get in a conflict that, in my opinion, intrinsically is not even-handed itself. And then you can get a fairly broad idea of what Nagorno-Karabakh is and what the issues are from history to politics to oil and gas to uh, landlines, etc., etc., as well as to alliances and vested interests. And then after that, if you want to go even further, well, feel free to do that, of course. Thank you, Harry. Absolutely. And obviously, we'll hope for a defrosting in those relations, although uh, hard to have hope. But this will come up again for sure. Now, our next question, point, subject, whatever we want to call it, we go across to Lebanon, and again, we talked about the uh, blast that occurred in, in the port side of Beirut some 12 weeks ago. So the question, Harry, is with an already dire economic situation, how is Lebanon coping almost 12 weeks after that blast? Well, uh, James, Lebanon is not coping. Lebanon is in a very bad place. I was watching a German documentary only yesterday in which one Lebanese woman was showing the damage to her own house as a result of the blast of 4th August at the port in Beirut. And the correspondent asked her, what do you think of Lebanon? And she said, Lebanon doesn't exist anymore. That is quite dramatic, but I understand because those are bottled feelings of frustration and angst. But Lebanon is in a bad place. Like Iraq, actually, there have been protests trying to change the system, trying to introduce freedoms, trying to make things more equal, trying to have citizenship play its role in the way those two countries uh, are run. But unfortunately, there have been too many interests again and too many oligarchs. And yet again, like you asked me, and I kind of answered the question when you talked of the Arab Spring and I subdivided it into two uprisings, uh, COVID, 
the dire economic uh, situation, the frustration and tiredness, fatigue of the people means that at the moment, uh, nothing much is happening. It's a process. And it depends really how long or how short that process takes to bear fruit. And at the moment, the oligarchs and the vested interests are eating into the interests of the citizenship of the countries, Iraq and Lebanon, but you are specifically of Lebanon. However, I hope that they will manage to rise up again. This has always been the history of the MENA region. They go down and then sphinx-like, they rise up again. But this time... It's really, really serious. And it's a shame they are two very interesting countries in very different ways. Yeah, it's painful looking on, really, isn't it, to be quite honest. But um, again, you've stuck to time there. I won't be talking about you sticking to time in subsequent podcasts. I should point that out to our listeners. This is only only because we're experimenting for once today. And it is a novelty for me to stick to time. Well, you're doing it really well, I've got to say. In fact, you've got a couple of seconds before that two minutes 20 expires. So well done, Harry. Now we come actually to our last topic now before I will give you a final thought, but we'll more on that later. The last topic is a country in North Africa dear to my heart through friends of mine. Um, We've talked about it many times. We've um, been rather somber in, in most of our discussions in recent years about this country. And that country is Libya. That said... On Friday, just as I was scanning through trying to, you know, get up to date with all the news from the Middle East, North Africa, I did notice that Libya's warring sides had agreed to a permanent ceasefire as of the 23rd of October. Now, rather than me speculate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I will just say to you, Harry, do you think that this will end hostilities or is it simply a small step in the right direction? It's very interesting, uh, James, because Libya is an important country for you for personal reasons. And if you remember, whenever we've spoken of Libya, I've always uh, said that it reminds me of an untouched Cyprus. There are three processes that are happening. When you say how permanent would this ceasefire be, uh, how permanent is uh, permanent is like how long is a piece of thread. It really depends on how much these sides, the different parties, and there are lots of parties who have to deliver lots of things for this to work. It depends how much they would subscribe uh, to it. But Uh, Just to keep uh, focus on what is happening, it's not only this one process that will dictate whether it works this time or not. There are three different approaches. There is the security process, then there is the political process, and then there is the economic process. What we saw happen and what you alluded to was the security process which happened in Geneva. Hopefully, it will pave the way for the political and economic discussions and negotiations that need to take place between so many different parties, but broadly saying East versus West of Libya. Will it work? It hasn't in the past, but maybe it will. Uh, The problem, in my opinion, is not the Libyans. They are quite good at working together. They don't want to kill each other or fight each other. It's all those people from outside who are making it so much less tenable as a 
conflict. And just to say that the Friday security reminded me of two friends, two people I respect immensely, who used to be representatives of the UN Secretary General uh, in Libya, Dr. Tariq Mitri and then Dr. Ghassan Salami. And both of them were hopefully optimistic with the outcome. So fingers crossed. Well, oh, I think we'll take anything positive, won't we, at this particular stage? So we that does sound wait, like a good. But thing. it's a, it's a, it's you know what, uh, James? It's a long process, and if you divide it into three areas: security, politics, and economics, any one of those could actually go off the radar. And if it does, and if it collapses then the whole thing might capsize. So it's very much still a, a difficult uh, situation. And you have the, the key players. Turkey's Erdogan has said that he doesn't believe it will work because he does. he's embedded in himself in Libya. He doesn't want to leave. Russia has supported the process, but Russia has a lot of vested interests in uh, Libya as well. There are almost contingents of Russians, whether official or unofficial, whether regular or mercenary, Wagner, others. So Turkey and Russia are the two that are pretty much at the moment uh, dividing the cake. And both of them would not wish to see their interests reduced just because the United Nations wants to come in and uh, get Libyans working together and save the country. But save, I will. And uh, I'll give you a little uh, thing about this, James. It's very interesting that there are very few Libyans killed during these long years of conflict, unlike other places. Why? Because I have this feeling that there is that uh, that sense of solidarity amongst Libyans, even though they are politically so divided between those who support the retired general in the east in Benghazi or those who support the government recognized by the United Nations in Tripoli. So it's, it's a very touch-and-go uh, situation, and I hope it works. Libya deserves it. Libya has all the oil to translate into money, to make itself a success, to build institutions and to look forward. And the woman in charge of the negotiations in Libya at the moment, uh, Stephanie Williams, was quite hopeful. So let us hope that uh, there will be, I don't know, a sign of hope uh, for a huge country with lots of potential, but too many interferences like in other places that you and I have spoken about over the past 10 years on and off. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that's something that we've seen throughout Africa, throughout the Middle East. If you've got that potential for economic prosperity due to your mineral wealth, then there's a lot of people that are interested, aren't there? Absolutely. The Absolutely. Right, Harry, it's final thought time. And I don't know if you're going to be positive, negative, wistful, reflective. I, I don't know where you're going with it. So surprise me. Well, I'm going to be positive, but I'm going to talk rather about an event. The United Nations this year marks its 75th anniversary. 
And when they decided, when the constituent member states of the United Nations decided to celebrate this in 2020, they passed their resolution with a theme. The theme, to be honest with you, is too long, and I can't remember exactly what the theme of the celebrations was. But the bit that stood out for me was when they said that they're going to celebrate the United Nations as that global organization that commits itself and its member states to multilateralism. And I think multilateralism is the key word in the celebrations that took place or are taking place across the United Nations. Why? Because with the rise of populism, we have seen each country behaving as a self-contained decider of issues. And this whole idea of people working together, countries working together, is sort of frittering away. We see this in uh, the Trump administration so clearly, but we see it elsewhere as well, with the EU, with the climate change and the Paris Agreement, with all sorts of things People are going into, it's me, it's me, it's me, and it's not multilateral. I wanted to raise this because I think I'm a multilateralist. I belong to the old school of multilateralism. And I think that that school still has a lot to offer. And the the converse of that, well, I suppose you call it unilateralism, but I don't think it has the same meaning, Uh, is frightening to me because it leads to more chaos uh, in the world, to less agreements, and we are seeing that in our world today. So just a word to say uh, good luck to the United Nations. It's not had an easy time of it. The Secretary General Antonio Guterres is not the happiest man, I would think, but they're trying to do their best In a world that believes it doesn't need institutions, it can do it on its own. And that is the bit that frightens me, hence why I wanted to throw in uh, multilateralism. And for those people who say, oh, Harry, you're again, uh, well, I defined myself as old school. You're again sort of being romantic and thinking of the old days when all this happened, but old days were old days. There were clear polarities now that doesn't exist, blah, 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 perhaps. But international relations, books and theories and concepts do not change overnight just because we've got a few uh, people who think they can uh, do it alone. And just to give people some energy, some hope for the future, let me sort of rise above my usual broken English and refer you, I mean, you work with people who also use Latin. I'm going to say something and then translate it. Forti et fideli nihil difficile, which translated to English means to the brave and the faithful, nothing is impossible. Everything we talked about today in those Twitter-like answers that I tried to give you, plus the little bit of uh, natter that we had around the edges of those tweet-like answers subscribes 
to two things, multilateralism, which is my belief in the way politics should be conducted, but also importantly, to the brave and the faithful, nothing is impossible. If we stick to that, anything from COVID to international relations, it's not going to be solved, but it might be one degree easier to manage in the future. Very well said indeed. And nothing is impossible for us on this podcast either, Harry, because we've changed format after 11 years of being, you know, I wouldn't say resistant to change, but we we certainly held our format for over a decade. But now Mina Golf 140, I think you're right. I think it has a bit of a future. I think it's not attempting to overstretch itself because it can't. So it's giving you some pointers, listeners. It's giving you the option to then take it on and explore further. Harry's YouTube channel. We've got a bit of arm wrestling with COVID in there as well, haven't we, Harry? So you've got plenty there to, to go into a bit more depth. But for now, in our new format, thanks ever so much, Harry. My pleasure, James. Always fun to talk to you. And even in those staccato short answers, I actually enjoyed it because it forced me to think of myself in court and trying to give uh, very clear short answers rather than blabbing on for half an hour. And unlike the uh, presidential candidates in the US, there was no need to silence you for going over time. (laughs) Thank you for that. You did very well. Harry, thanks ever so much. And I'll talk to you next time. My pleasure.